0: Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network, with host Ranger Doug.
1: And here's Ranger Doug. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 28th program. Tonight, of course, we're still in this series, Russia moves into Ukraine. We're in the 13th episode of that program. Tonight, we'll be talking about again, where are things now and what lies in the future. Also want to mention that we have another program out there, wounded but not broken with our host, Patrick Scrogan, a wounded aviator who had a horrific air crash in the Iraq war, lost his leg and has become a superb super athlete, and actually has a very productive and informative program on Monday nights. He's made a heroic recovery and is quite an inspiration to all of us. Everything we do here is based on only open source information. You can actually find most of this information yourself, but we have ways of processing it through experience and expertise. Our purpose is to inform vets, serve our active and reserve military and retirees, and of course, our citizens. Tonight, I'm joined by four great guests, Dr. Brian Downing. Mr. Doug Wise, Mr. David Johnson, Jason Black, all have been with us before. So I'd like to just give the panel a chance to introduce themselves. I'm Ranger Doug. Since I'm just the dealer in this card game, I don't need any introduction. But please, introduce yourselves and give a short statement. Brian, over to you, sir.
2: Brian Downing here, uh, I avoided the draft by volunteering for the Army when I was 17. Three years later, I got out. I had a year in Vietnam under my belt a Corvette Stingray in my garage, and the GI Bill. So off to school, I went and uh, I studied at Georgetown University of Chicago and Harvard. And I've been pretty much an independent
3: analyst ever since.
1: Thanks, Brian. Dave, over to you, please, sir. Well, hi,
3: I'm Dave Johnson, and I did serve in the Army. I went to West Point from there into the infantry and then from the infantry into uh, Special Forces. Uh, Spent some time there. After I got out, uh, I worked for Intel Corporation Digital Security Products. And now I am uh, the Executive Director of the Center for Advanced Defense Studies, C4ADS, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit that leverages unique people, publicly available information, and emerging technology to address complex security problems. Our motto is Innovation for Peace. And we do that by seeing the world a little differently. We don't see these conflicts as conflicts between states. But between social networks.
1: Great, Dave. Thank you, Jason. Then over to you.
4: Hey, thanks, Doug. My name is Jason Black. Did twenty nine years in the army as an infantryman, a tanker, and uh, in special forces, and then uh, left the service and moved over to the interagency for the last five years.
1: Great, Jason. Thanks. Then Doug, over to you, please, sir.
5: Well, thanks, Ranger Doug. I I appreciate again. It's a privilege and and an honor to be here, and in particular to be part of any enterprise that. You know, is in service to our heroic veterans. Yeah, you know, I was a career military officer in the last portion of my career, the last five years. I was detailed to to CIA, where I spent the next thirty years undercover as an operations officer. I was had the uh, the honor of being a station chief four times. I had nine overseas tours, had two tours in Afghanistan, three tours in Bosnia, tour in Kosovo, Montenegro, Albania, and I had two tours in in Iraq for a total of five years there, and uh, I served in in Thailand. I was uh, chief of operational training for CIA for a significant period of time uh, at our training facility in the the United States. And I had the uh, opportunity, I guess I could say that, uh, when uh, the DNI and the Secretary of Defense directed me over to be the deputy director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, where I I, sp- I spent a couple years with uh, those outstanding officers there. So
1: well, thank you all. So now we'll move to the first question, and that will be to you, Brian. Where do we think that Ukraine and Russia are today in the war? Well,
2: we've seen Ukrainian forces drive the Russians back from Kiev in the last three or four weeks, and uh, over the last week or two, they've done the same to Russian troops north and northeast of Kharkiv. Uh, the second largest city in Ukraine. Uh, In some places, Ukrainian troops are right up on the Russian border, making them wonder. Other than that, the Ukrainians are trying to hold off Russian offensives in the Donbass. The Russians are pressing west through a number of places. Thus far, they've enjoyed only moderate success. They're running into the buzzsaw of Ukrainian troops and Western weapons. What are the Russians doing? They are trying to deepen their control in the Donbass. They want to solidify it. They want to get more turf than they stole back in 2014. As I said, they're not especially successful successful. One of the puzzling and from the Ukrainian perspective welcome things is that we're hearing that Putin and his General Gerasimov are making very local decisions in the war. They are making decisions at the regimental and at times at the battalion level that just completely guts the command system in the Russian army, such as it was. Uh, It's a bit like Elon Musk overseeing assembly line production at all his Tesla plants. That's where
3: we are. Back to you, Ranger Doug.
1: Thank you, Brian. That was great. Dave, then over to you, sir.
3: Well, um, I th- think uh, Doug had a great uh, intro there, and I, I do believe that um, we are seeing, we were in a phase where both sides were rearming, a little bit of a strategic pause, uh, getting ready for that fight in the Donbass region uh, and south. Uh, we do see some setbacks for the Russians here. Again, they were on the offensive. And uh, Russians on the offensive, that require, offensive requires a great deal of coordination. But Russians in a trench line with, on the defensive in Dunbar, uh, that's a different thing. Also, with a, a large Russian-speaking uh, pop, Russian population in the Donbass regions that are controlled by the Russians, uh, that's going to be a little bit of a challenge. Uh, certainly, I agree that they failed in their offensive efforts. Uh, I think it will be equally difficult for the Ukrainians to go on the offensive against massed artillery and trench lines. Uh, because it's an entirely different type of fight, and centralized control can be useful in that space. It'll be interesting to see where we go from here. Thank you, Ranger Doug.
1: Thank you, Dave. Now, Jason, over to you, please.
4: Thank you, Ranger Doug. Uh, I'll just uh, add on a couple of comments. Uh, I think it's interesting, uh, the recent uh, developments in Mariupol with the surrender of the Ukrainian unit there at the steel mill. And um, it seems to be perhaps some sort of a negotiated arrangement by the Russians to hasten their full control of Mariupol. So rather than fighting to the bitter end there, they did that. And perhaps uh, that's backfiring at home uh, because uh, apparently some of the Russian social media and and, uh, other outlets are um, not pleased with the the arrangement for the prisoners that uh, that the Russian government came up with. So that may backfire and we may see that cause problems. Also, I think uh, the, the world will watch that closely, the treatment of those Prisoners by, by the Russians, and whether or not the Ukraine and Russia work towards some sort of prisoner exchange uh, or not—that's uh, very much to be to be determined right now. Uh, and then also, um, things have really bogged down in Donbass and, and along that land bridge to Crimea. It's kind of a mixed bag. In some areas, the Russians are on the defensive, and others they're continuing to take limited patches of ground. But there's nothing decisive going on there anymore. It's just it's bogged down to sort of a grind. So we'll see. Which side has more endurance and, and more staying power in that fight? Thanks.
1: Great, Jason. Thank you very much. Excellent answers, all of you. I appreciate it. Uh, Doug Wise, then, sir, over to you. You know, my thoughts are that,
5: you know, the war hasn't really progressed much. I think we've settled into what everyone would have predicted, which is kind of a war of attrition, but it's a bloody war of attrition. And I think that uh, we're now starting to see the effects of one, uh, the Western support to the Ukrainians you know the advanced weaponry particularly the 155 uh howitzers uh and certainly the ukrainians are have developed to, to fine art the use of the unmanned aerial vehicles uh, the drones and i think on the russian side we we're, were seeing the effects of the new russian commander he's he's a man who demonstrated patience brutal patience if if i can combine those two terms brutal patience in syria and we're seeing that here where he is taking a very considerate path to apparently achieve, you know, conquest and stability and faux governance of a number of the eastern parts of, of Ukraine. Ukrainians have have, have enjoyed uh, some tactical successes, uh, as have the Russians. But again, nothing that's strategically changed much uh, in the battle space But I think those changes are are yet to come.
1: Thank you, Doug. So now that the war is underway, what are the war aims of Russia, Mr. Putin and Ukraine and Mr. Zelensky? And that'll be to you, Dave. Over to you.
3: I think the war aims uh, for Mr. Putin really haven't changed much. Uh, He's got uh, the the big one, which is always going to be that Russia must exert control over the Ukraine in order to prevent invasion from the West. Uh, So whoever the president is, whether it's Putin or somebody else, this is a thousand year fight. You know, this is not something that's going to go away. They may get a truce or they may even, even if the Ukrainians win, the Russians will be back because they can't allow, uh, Ukraine to be controlled by someone else. Uh, and in fact, you know, when they had it under their control through someone else, like Yanukovych, uh, who was part of, uh, Putin's circle, that's different than when it's under control of Zelensky, who is not part of Putin's circle. Uh, so, uh, I, I think that, uh, His war aims are going to be to try and hold on to as much as he can and at least carve off the Donbass. You know, get a stalemate that looks like the Donbass remains in in his hands. Um, In terms of the South, obviously he'd love to be able to to block off the Black Sea, but that's not going to happen. In terms of the Ukrainian war aims, um, the uh, Ukrainians would like to see uh, all of their territory back in their control. Certainly they want to make a point about their sovereignty. Uh, there may be some negotiation that they're willing to do. Uh, we will see. But also, um, you know, they have a large Russian minority in uh, the Donbas region that would have to be won over even if they seize back the terrain. Um, you know, much like Kosovo, where the population was uh, Kosovar and therefore Serbia lost the terrain. Russia could say, hey, you know, maybe you create these independent republics and they're not really Russian, but they're still under Russian control. Uh, and that's kind of their, you know, the in-state I think that uh, that Putin would accept. Minimum in-state is independent republics in the
4: Donbass under Russian control.
1: Okay, Jason, then same question over to you, sir. I'll
4: just uh, uh, tag on, I completely agree with uh, my colleagues on um, the the war aims. I think the Russians are going to have a difficult time maintaining control of that land bridge to, to Crimea. So it'll be interesting to see how much effort and how many resources they're willing to pour into that uh, in the long term in order to sustain that connection. Uh, the Ukrainians uh, also completely agree, uh, but one of their, what I think is an emerging war aim is that they're starting to recognize, uh, they, they have long recognized, but they realize the criticality of the goodwill and general benevolence of the Western world that manifests as material and financial support for them. And uh, that is probably their number one strategic asset as this thing grinds along is the continued support, both ideological and moral, and also material from the better part of the Western world. That is what's going to see them through this uh, situation and and hopefully allow them to prevail.
1: Great. Thank you, Jason. Over to you, Brian.
4: I think the Russian defense
2: establishment is more optimistic than we are about their chances. Uh, That's not surprising. I'm hearing a woodchipper analogy coming out of the Russian military, that they believe that they can just grind down the Ukrainian troops along that long Donbass salient, uh, break the army, solidify the land bridge, and then on to Odessa and Transnister. I don't think they can do it, but I believe there is just so much misinformation, delusion, and lying going up and down the Russian chain of command, that uh, their understanding of the war just, well, let's just say it doesn't square with ours. Uh, Conversely, I think the Ukrainian forces believe they can wear down Russian troops. Um, I really think these American artillery pieces that have been flowing in over the last few weeks are going to be pretty important in this war of attrition in the East. With counter-battery counter battery systems, I think they can find and destroy a lot of Russian artillery and then find and devastate Russian positions without any offensive operations. It's no fun being under artillery fire. Uh, even war-hardened veterans, and there are many in the Russian army, I get very tired of it because you can't fight back. And as for the new conscripts coming in, I think it will be disastrous for them. Ukraine may be preparing an offensive in coming weeks, or maybe by midsummer, of driving south from Zaporizhia to the, Bal- the Black Sea coast, splitting the land bridge. That's something to watch for, but I don't expect it in coming weeks. Back to you, Ranger Doug.
1: Thank you, Brian. Now, Doug, over to you, sir. Uh,
5: the war aims of Russia. Let's, as I've said many times, particularly on this program in the past as well as on Twitter and on a number of written articles, uh, the war aims are, are very clear. This isn't a military operation, even though Putin defined it as a special military operation. fact of the matter is this is not about, you know, the success of the Russian military, except as it is applied to the extermination of Ukrainian identity, Ukrainian society, Ukrainian culture, and even Ukrainian language. You know this is all about punishing ukraine that's that is the strategic Russian war aim now they've got obviously theater objectives they need to accomplish in order to accomplish that strategic objective and as we've all commented up to this point, you know the grinding war of attrition that we're seeing on the eastern provinces you know is just becoming more and more brutal as they totally destroy you know the steel plant for example which at one point, employed about 10,000 workers and produced in, incredible metal products, everything from rolled steel to pig iron to steel products and raw raw steel, as far as that goes. And now it's destroyed. And, uh, you know, the Russians are now <laughs> saying that they're going to turn, you know, raise what's left of this plant to the ground and, uh, you know, turn it into a, a new resort, like the Russians need a new resort in Ukraine. But who knows? I mean... The Russians are not, you know, making decisions rationally here. It appears. It appears to me, the Ukrainian war aim. Obviously, they're taking advantage of of the war of attrition. They're actually, when it's a war of attrition, they're actually winning, uh, it's because they're holding their own. And like in Kharkiv, they actually expelled the Russians, and uh, where the Russians were hoping to keep the Ukrainians out of the city and uh, keep the Ukrainians away from the Russian border, and they failed at that. And uh, as I alluded in my opening remarks, you know, obviously a huge component of that is the morale of the Ukrainian army and uh, the weapon systems that are being provided in training and other logistical support by, by Western nations, all of which is contributing to Mr. Zelensky's, uh, you know, need and, and legitimate need to survive his government and his ability to govern even if it's increasingly smaller parts of Ukraine. The fact of the matter is that the would that since the Russians haven't conquered Ukraine, you know, based on what I think Putin had in mind and the senior Russian military officials, general officers believe that the Ukrainian people just collapse and a bunch of Ukrainians become collaborators and uh Ukraine would be theirs for the taking. And they they actually assessed wrong. And uh, this isn't your dad's Ukraine. You know, they have fought with great tenacity, great resilience and great courage. So Zelensky, his job is to survive. His job is to preserve as much of Ukrainian soil as he possibly can, because the longer he can do that and the more cost he imposes on the Russians, the more likely that the Russians will not try to take the rest of Ukraine, and that their strategic objective of destroying Ukrainian identity will not be realized. So I think that kind of sums it up. Again, I thought my colleagues did a great job, and I'm not sure I added very much to what they had to say.
1: Thank you, Doug. And now it's time for a commercial. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour
0: Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Attention! Looking for semi drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company become part of one of the most respected driver-friendly and successful transportation companies in america where drivers are treated as royalty contact us at gtscarrier.com again gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667 that number again 847-754-4667 we would love to help you which in turn helps everyone gts is an equal opportunity employer
1: Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com.
0: Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated, it's cumbersome, and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour.
1: And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Now that brings us then to our third question. And this basically focuses on the world at large. What are the noticeable activities of and or effects in or on the U.S., NATO, the EU, the world, including the PRC? And that question and its answer will be led by Jason. Jason, over to you, sir.
4: Thanks, Ranger Doug. Uh, We continue to see ramped up and structured lethal aid from the U.S., uh, in a series of uh, political visits photo op visits uh, to the Ukraine by high level uh, officials from the United States to demonstrate support but then also uh, to to set themselves up for uh, election activities this fall but uh, it's encouraging to see bipartisan support um, uh, across both both sides of the aisle. Uh, in Congress, I know there are some supply chain snags uh, taking place uh, with some of these high-end shoulder-fired weapon systems, javelins and stingers, and uh, that'll be a scramble to keep up with the expenditure rate and the demands because um, it's likely that the manufacturing base here wasn't ready to crank out those systems at the at the at the rate that they're being expended over there. Uh, and it looks like the Pentagon has stood up a special interest group to focus on fielding. Uh, the right t- types of material support to the Ukraine, and they've kind of opened up a all-comers, commercial off-the-shelf uh, offer to private companies that have technology and systems that might be of use to come and, um, and, and peddle their wares at the Pentagon. So that's, um, that's encouraging that the Department of Defense is actually turning to private industry and, and kind of shortcutting the defense procurement process to try and expedite some of those systems over to the Ukraine. So all, all good developments on the U.S. side. NATO and the EU. Uh, we see Finland and Sweden uh, applying for membership into NATO, and that is uh, definitely freaking out Russia uh, on a lot of levels. And uh, it's been a long time since uh, since uh, uh, we had anyone join NATO. But its ranks are swelling, and uh, i got to think that the Ukraine is looking at that and trying to figure out when and how they make a concerted effort to join NATO. and. Uh, that will be interesting to watch as well because i'm I'm not quite sure that nato is is ready to jump the gun and and admit ukraine into its ranks quite quite yet uh the eu looking uh, kind of across the economic side of things they are still incredibly dependent on russian hydrocarbons and um uh, so i think uh, as as the months tick by and we start getting towards uh, September, and October, when the temperatures drop again, there's a bit of a panic there as they try to figure out what their energy solution is going to be for the winter of 22, 23. Um, and across the world, just kind of focusing on the PRC, they're continuing to watch closely. They, they uh, will often sit and, and display incredible strategic patience, and let a situation develop. And I think that's what they're doing with the Ukraine. And what they're really watching is the level of unity and cooperation between Western nations in support of the Ukraine, and then also probably watching to see if there are signs of that cooperation and support waning. Uh, so who has the staying power uh, in order to support this? And uh, that will be particularly interesting as, as, uh, as Europe looks towards its energy needs this fall. Thanks.
1: Great, Jason. Thank you very much. Uh, Brian, over to you then, sir.
4: Well, uh, the mention
2: of Finland and Sweden was clear, and that's just a, a devastating blow. That It must be reverberating throughout the Russian national security uh, bureaus. They've just added, what, about 700 miles of hostile frontage up along the Finnish border? And you have Switzerland, not talking about joining NATO, but perhaps um, arranging some defensive uh, discussions with them. Switzerland moving away from neutrality that uh that's just a uh, a very welcome and surprising thing uh i think the world food situation is going to be developing in the next few weeks i think we're all seeing uh grocery prices go up but in large parts of the world, that's not an annoyance. That's a major, major problem. It's going to cause instability in many countries, Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, South Asia. Putin, I believe, is going to hope that this focuses a lot of hostility towards the U.S. and the West. He'll say it's their war that's causing all this. Well, I think he will get some traction with that. After all, there is... It's just sort of a reflexive hostility to the United States in many parts of the world. But I think most of the world is is focusing its animus on Russia and Putin and its war and its war crimes,
3: not the U.S.,
1: Thank you, Brian. Then, Dave, over to you. So,
3: Russia has been described as a globalized criminal network with nuclear weapons. Uh, At the same time, you can look at folks like President Zelensky, who's in Panama Papers, and you look at the amount of aid that's actually getting to the front versus what comes into the country. You can look at the challenges facing NGOs and the corruption that they deal with in order to provide aid into Ukraine. And you can look at the world through the lens of a group of illicit social networks doing things. And so, if you look in the Past two weeks in the media in Europe, you'll see that there was this huge outing of Russian uh, uh, oligarch and other uh, global criminal entities in uh, Dubai's real estate sector. And that has now called for, that has now resulted because of this conflict in the Ukraine, this has now resulted in the EU calling for blacklisting of the UAE. Now, the UAE is, you know, does 28% of China's business in that region, uh, and they've been looking at whether or not they actually want to participate in Western financial markets and the rest. So you're, you're looking within that space of, uh, of understanding whether they we're pushing the UAE into the East because of our efforts to uncover Russian oligarchs in, uh, you know, in their money laundering around the world, because these are globalized networks. uh, And that has an impact on all kinds of things, because uh, everything from poaching to to terrorism, uh, all of these things end up being linked. In fact, if you look at corruption, you say, well, what would happen to any Stinger missiles that might not be accounted for exactly on the way to the front? Well, it could go into the garage of some government official to be resold and wind up in the hands of some terrorist group somewhere else. Uh, why? Because, well, if they're hedging their bets against winning or losing, they want to have enough money to go hide in London, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So when we start looking at the world through those lenses, we realize that the future of the stalemate between uh, Ukraine and Russia, we are starting to see is going to be globally uh, integrated with the behaviors of all of the illicit actions and malign actions in the case of uh, of China, uh, and that you know, we, we need to probably look a little bit lower below the surface uh, as we realize how all of these things are linked and our actions in Ukraine, the aid that we give, could end up in the hands that we don't want it to. I mean, we already have what's it? SeaGAR in, Af- in, in Afghanistan trying to find that aid uh, and we could end up making the world a whole lot worse place if we're not careful about how we and the West, how we do support uh, Ukraine, because, again, Ukraine faces all of the challenges of the developing countries that are in that part of the world relative to corruption. Uh, and uh, that's kind of where I see the global impact of what's going on there uh, and uh, the, the potential stalemate and ongoing efforts uh, to try and stabilize the region. Uh, and uh, I think that's uh, that's kind of the future. Back to you, Ranger Doug.
1: Great. Thanks, Dave. Over to you, Doug.
5: Oh, thanks. I, I think, uh, you know... The the impacts on the U.S., NATO, and EU, and and the rest of the world, including the PRC, I think it's a highly relevant question because, you know, uh, I think even though, you know, most of the world is far from the brutality of this battlefield, the reality is the impact's going to be extraordinary. I mean, we're already seeing in the U.S. the economic impacts, you know, the price of oil inflation. uh, And since almost every American on the planet Uh, has an IRA or some sort of investment vehicle for, you know, savings and retirement or or working capital, you know, the downturn of the market really affects almost every American citizen. Uh, And so this war is not without cost to the United States. And it remains to be seen what the ultimate cost of our investment there in terms of supplies and material and training, and I'm not talking about you know, blood, but more like treasure. Uh, And so the United States is is certainly, every American is certainly going to be part of the fight to preserve Ukraine, even if it's indirectly. It's going to be, you know, their pocketbook is going to contribute to to what we're doing in Ukraine. And it's a direct impact of Putin's careless decision to to invade a sovereign nation, uh, to say the least uh nato i think the most significant development uh was uh you know the the petition by finland and sweden to join uh nato even in the face of russian threats and i think it was a hollow threat quite frankly because i i don't believe for a minute that the russians can hardly fight a comp- fight competently you know in uh, in ukraine against what would by any assessment you know a vastly outnumbered uh Ukrainian military and it just shows you what uh what the the non lethal component of warfare you know the courage resilience and and the and uh, the indomitable spirit of the Ukrainians that uh, has as much of an impact on success as 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 weapons uh and uh, and ammunition do but uh i i thought it was said an awful lot And it kind of is ironic from a geopolitical standpoint that, you know, Putin was already using, and I think it was a canard, uh, quite frankly, because I already said that that NATO hardly poses a threat to Russia, and uh, it's all about, you know, punishing Ukraine. But, uh, you know, now all of a sudden, as a result of, uh, of this reckless Russian behavior, you know, now there's two more, Na- two more member nations in, Na- in NATO. So ironically, you know, Putin caused the increase in NATO, not, not disunity or weakening of NATO in any way.
1: Thank you, Doug. Now we'll need to pause for another commercial. We'll be back in a moment. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
0: The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s, when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving
1: history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have
0: served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour.
1: And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 13th program in this series. Then we move to the fourth question. And this one is generally one that doesn't see much effort, of course, because we haven't seen much in the way of ceasefire, truce, or peace efforts. But in case we have, Brian, what do you think? Do we have anything moving?
2: Uh, I don't think so. There was the welcome... uh negotiated surrender at Mariupol, which apparently is only partial because I'm hearing there are still several hundred Ukrainian troops uh, still there, still willing to fight. Uh, But a ceasefire for the whole war, I don't think so. That would greatly favor Russia, which is in desperate need of refurbishing its units and resupplying them. Ukraine is managing that quite well without a
3: ceasefire. So I don't see any ceasefire
1: negotiations coming. Back to you, Doug. Great, then, Dave. How about you?
3: Well, I, I don't. As, as we've just finished saying, I don't see that there's a, you know, something that's uh, in the future. I think we're probably going to see, uh, unfortunately, um, you know, the Russians start moving onto the defensive. The Ukrainians attempt to be on the offensive, uh, and um, you know, hopefully, from their perspective, uh, they'll be able to gain ground and be more effective with their with their tactics and with their, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, more individually led, uh, uh, you know, alftax tactique approaches. But, likely, the Russians have always proven very strong in the defense, as I said before. Heavy artillery and trenches are a whole different thing than, you know, mobile amb- ambushes with, uh, you know, 200-kilometer uh, moving uh, electric bikes, you know. So, um I think that what we're going to see is an attempt by the Ukrainians to shift to the offensive, but I don't think it'll be met with much success.
1: Thank you, Dave. Great answer. And now I'll pass the floor over to
4: Jason. I completely agree with everybody else. Nothing looks promising uh, in the near term or the midterm for any kind of meaningful truce or ceasefire.
1: Thank you. Great. Then over to Doug Wise. Doug, you?
5: Uh, I think it's an excellent question, and I, I think we're seeing, you know, uh I can marry a pole. You know, you see little tactical agreements, you know, that are very isolated to a specific part of geography. Uh, You know, the steel production plant, you know, they negotiated, I think, the evacuation. And they just recently turned over, you know, 60 medics and several hundred wounded uh, Ukrainian defenders. Uh, And that's all a a byproduct of a very local, very tactical kind of white flag. Level of uh, negotiating, but uh, nothing that will affect strategically the outcome of the war or produce a wholesale ceasefire. Again, I think uh, I'm I'm not a professional negotiator, but I think one doesn't negotiate if one believes one's winning because you don't need to negotiate. So I think the Ukrainians could legitimately claim that uh they're having success on the battlefield as we've already discussed uh, uh, in, in all of the questions that you've asked up to this point. Uh and the Russians, even if we would argue they're, they're you know, the tide has slightly turned in favor of the Ukrainians at this point, you know, certainly possible to turn back again. But I think the Russians, at least through Russian propaganda you know, the Russian soldiers all the way up to general officers would probably believe that, you know, they're prevailing on the battlefield. And even if they would harbor some doubts about whether they're succeeding right now, I think the Russians would believe, you know, based on their worldview, based on what they know, that they will ultimately prevail. So again, you know, why would you negotiate? you know, when you win. But that said, we're seeing negotiations that that happen and that's a natural consequence of these kind of crises and it's necessary that both sides go through what I consider to be kind of a a legitimate charade. Uh, So in the, you know, unlikely event that there is a negotiated breakthrough, there's at least a mechanism to action, you know, a willingness to negotiate so you don't have to waste a lot of time in a conference room, identifying officials to sit sit around the negotiating table, you know, you can action a a willingness to negotiate much quicker than you could otherwise. But, you know, there's going to be very little uh, negotiated impact uh, to, to this war of attrition at this point.
1: Thank you, Doug. Well, great. Then that brings us to our fifth question. What can we look forward to in the coming weeks? And then also, if you wish, to append any further thoughts from the discussion we've had already or looking forward in the future. Jason, over to you. Your cut.
4: I think uh, it'll be interesting to watch uh, as, as NATO um, moves towards assimilating Finland and Sweden and to watch the Russian response there. I also think it'll be interesting to, to track the, uh, these prisoners from the steel mill in Mariupol and to uh, watch how Russia handles that. and, and whether Ukraine's government is able to successfully negotiate some sort of swap or exchange. I think Russia probably realizes it's going to be under a bit of a microscope uh, with those prisoners because they had so much publicity and exposure uh, prior to their surrender. The fight on the ground, I don't see anything decisive happening tactically on the ground anytime soon. Brian, then over to you, sir.
2: I'm expecting to see continuing deterioration of Russian forces from casualties, poor supplies, Weak morale and mistrust of their officers. We, we've all heard about that disastrous uh, bridge crossing attempt about a week or so ago. Well, they're, they're, the blame is being fixed to local officers. Uh, that may or may not be true, but that is where the blame is falling. And I, I think the Russian army will be no longer capable of offensive operations in, within a few weeks. Uh, Going over to the Ukrainian side, I think they are drawing from that great military thinker, Muhammad Ali. When he went up against a bigger, more formidable opponent, he adopted the rope-a-dope technique. He allowed his opponent to wear himself out, delivering uh, body blows that did not have any meaningful effect on his resolve, his health, his ability to continue the fight. And after a while, uh, his opponent wore himself out, and Ali was able to uh, win the fight. Um, I think we're going to see more and more guerrilla operations, Ukrainian guerrilla operations, behind Russian lines. Maybe deep behind their lines, you know, 10, 20, 30 kilometers behind their lines. Uh, We're seeing those uh, anti-tank teams on motorbikes they are the chivalrous knights of our day. And I think they're going to force the Russians to patrol their rear areas more aggressively, and that means taking troops off the front lines. So that's where I see things. Very bad for Russia, very good for Ukraine.
1: Back to you, Doug. Thank you, Brian. And then I'll pass that question over to Doug Wise. Doug, over to you, sir.
5: Well, I already commented and I don't want to repeat myself. And I think my colleagues have offered some very useful perspective. Um, I don't think there's going to be a lot of dramatic changes, I think, because the Russians are focused on incremental gains so that the the battlefield commander knows that he can actually control and govern the territory that he's slowly acquiring. Uh, And so they're going to be uh, in consolidation of gains mode and stability operations uh, as quickly as they possibly can and they can't do that and, and make bold military moves uh to expand ex- where the russian military is now uh they just don't have the capability and the resources and that would be true even if there wasn't any ukrainian defenders on, in front of them but their problem is is super complicated by the fact that there is you know very credible and significant resistance to any movement west by by Russian forces. So you turn a crank on all that, I think we're going to see that the Russians are not going to be bold and audacious. They're going to be very careful. They're going to be very brutal. They're going to kill a lot of civilians. Uh, and uh, they're just going to want to be able to put the Russian military in every square inch of the eastern part of Ukraine, establish puppet governments, and uh, begin the the charade of, of governance. And uh, and I think they're good at the same time. They're going to be dealing with the tremendous guerrilla warfare, war of insurgency, you know, mounted by the Ukrainians, uh, which, as we all know, can be very, very bloody and very uh, brutal in and of itself, even if the scale of loss of life is much smaller than it would be on a large-scale combat operation battlefield. But I think things are going to move slow. Uh, And then once the Russians acquire control over their territory, I suspect that this Russian commander will, in fact, refit, rearm, reequip, even if if they're challenged and they're starting to get, you know, woefully untrained conscripts. And they're now incorporating, you know, these Wagner-like security companies into main force units. and. Uh, you know, even if with all of those challenges that I think that uh, the world is seeing and the Russians are facing, in the end, uh, you know they'll get to the point where this this military commander believes it's time to march west. How fast he does, in what way he does, uh, it's a pretty broad front, so he's got to be pretty careful and have to have a well crafted plan. And of course, as as all of us on this uh, podcast know that uh, you know the overused you know, thought of, you know, the first shot always changes the plan in a gunfight and uh, no different on the Ukrainian battlefield. You know, once there's a little, you know, diminu- diminution, I don't know if that's a real word, reduction in in military activity to because the Russians are spending that time consolidating and refitting, rearming, I think we're going to see you know movement to the west, but it's going to take a while, it's going to take months for them to do that, uh, and uh, be interesting to watch. So, I think the future is not going to be pretty particularly different than the than the past, you know, 35, 60, 35 to 45 days. Uh, but eventually, the, I think the Russians will, will certainly try to make more progress because, again, you know, this isn't about military conquest, this is about destruction of Ukrainian identity. And they have no choice but to kill a large number of Ukrainians, kill uh, President Zelensky, uh, and prevent uh, Western aid from from reaching the Ukrainian defenders. So it'll take a while, but I think the Russians will certainly have that. They're keeping that main thing, the main thing, for sure. Back to you,
1: sir. Thanks, Doug. Great. Well, that ends our formal rounds. Now we'll need to pause for another commercial. We'll be back in a moment. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. You're listening to
0: Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. We'll be right back. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of this storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well then gts transportation is looking for you gts transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history we are an international company with opportunities all around the world apply now by going to our website gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667 that number again 847-754-4667
1: Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com.
0: Attention all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC we're back and here's your co-host ranger duck
1: welcome back ladies and gentlemen veterans radio hour 2.0 this is our 13th program in this series so i've got one last question i want to pose to the group we're not going to play a jeopardy round because with four guests we have some kind of time constraints normally introduced this is just a general question and each of you in the same order can take a crack at it if you wish what do you think the chances are that we'll see famine in some parts of the world based on what we've seen so far? That would be to you, Jason.
4: I, I can't speak to the, to the level of probability of famine, but if it happens, it'll happen in Africa. Uh, they seem to be always uh, in jeopardy of, of famine down there. and I know that uh, a good bit of the food that's produced in the Ukraine is shipped down to Africa, and they're going to have a tough time making anything like that happen this year with the current conditions. Great. Brian, over to you, sir.
2: Uh, very high probability of famine in Africa, probably also Central Asia, including Afghanistan, where food allocation will be worsened by uh, poor government. Poor government. Uh, you know, the rising food prices are nuisances to us, but they're disastrous for many parts of the world. And just short of famine, I think you will see instability in many countries. We're seeing riots in Iran, and I think that leads people to think that they're going to overthrow the mullahs and the generals. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, Pakistan might be more more on the brink of that.
5: Over to you, Doug. Thanks, your Doug. I think it's a, an important question because it expands the impact of this tragedy beyond the, the just extraordinary loss of life and destruction of of a wonderful country and a wonderful culture. And quite frankly, the negative effects, well-deserved, you know, on the Russian government and the Russian people, whom, quite frankly, I don't care about any more than Putin because he doesn't obviously care either about his own countrymen. He thinks that their suffering and loss of life is a civic civic duty and it's just an obligation to the state. In his inner circle, certainly You know, are not going to turn on Putin because all their wealth and power and position in the political structure is dependent upon him making it. So, you know, the likelihood that you know he's going to get a a, you know Archduke Ferdinand bullet in the head is probably very low in in my estimation. But I think a question, you know, as I said, it, it really expands the tremendous negative adverse impact of this reckless decision to invade Ukraine. I'm not so much worried about people starving. I think it's the prospect of people starving and the perception of that by many third world countries. And as I already commented, you know, in, in the uh, Arab North Africa and even in Central Central Africa, you know, where the dependence upon bread products, or wheat, wheat byproducts, uh, you know, is necessary for the preservation of stability. So I, I think it's the... It's the fear, it's the apprehension it's going to be the reaction to fear and apprehension and the holding their governments somehow accountable to provide a solution that may not be possible uh but I'm not so much worried about the loss of life because of famine, I'm worried about you know the instability the the collapse of civil society in in many countries across the globe, and that the international community is going to have to deal with that, and there's All of us on this podcast and all of of our, you know, wonderful veterans out there listening to what we have to say, you know, know that uh, in the end we're going to have to, you know, deal with the consequence. We, the United States, and and our allies are going to have to deal with the consequences of that because uh, nation building and providing foreign aid and helping governments, you know, do things, uh, you know, competently, de- democratically, and with human rights. And I think, uh, I think some of these countries are going to be extraordinarily challenged. Again, I'm not, I'm not so concerned about people starving to death. It's the perception of people starving to death by those populations that could be affected and creating instability in situations that their governments just possibly can't control and they can't manage competently. I I really worry about that. Back to you. Thank
1: you all. And yes, I believe that famine is a problem, or at least uh, food insecurity on a major level. And the issue probably will go to the fact that the food normally will flow to where there's money to pay for it. And unfortunately, for various regions in the world where they don't grow much in the way of food and need imports, they won't have a lot of money with which to attract that food. Well, that ends tonight's program. This was our 28th program on the Veterans Radio R2.0 since we began back on Veterans Day in 2021. This was our 13th program in the series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. Tonight, our guests were Dr. Brian Downing, Jason Black, Dave Johnson, and Doug Wise. I want to suggest that you subscribe to our program. We're on over 12 podcast platforms now, including Apple, Amazon, Spotify, our own RSS feed, other places as well. We have another program called Wounded But Not Broken, hosted by Patrick Scrogan, a wounded aviator who's staged a heroic recovery, is a super endurance athlete, the leader, and also a wonderful host and interviewer of many people of very interesting stories. I love the program and I hope you will too. It's on Monday evenings. We don't discuss any classified information here. We don't use official sources. We gather this from open sources. And the point of view of everyone on the show is that of their own uh, views on things. We stay away from partisan politics on every program. I'm Ranger Doug, and of course, I don't need an introduction because I'm only the dealer in this card game. We'll see you next week. Ranger Doug out.
0: Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, No One Left Behind.